Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today we're in Zurich and we'll have a chat with Chris Grossman. He's the CEO and co-founder at Beekeeper. We will talk about his entrepreneurial background because he grew up in a Swiss and Mexican family. So we of course want to know the differences between Mexico and Switzerland when it comes to starting a startup. And then we also talk about his corporate job that he actually had for about one and a half years before he finally decided to start his own company. And then we go on an entrepreneurial journey, meaning we start with a dating app, go through a social network and then end up at the corporate communication tool for remote field workers, what Beekeeper actually is today. As you see, there is a long story to be told uh, with many pivots, learnings, and also challenges. So we will cover all of that in today's episode. It was a fascinating talk with Chris. Uh, I think he's a very inspiring leader and also a cool co-founder to talk to. And in that regard, uh, I think there are many, many lessons about how you can actually come up with your first ideas testing them, learning them, adapting them until you actually hit something that's working. And we will talk exactly about that sweet spot when you realize, okay, now we've found something that's working. Now it's worth uh, to invest the time and double down on it. I think that's a fantastic story. So without further ado, let's get the show started. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Chris, a very warm welcome to the Swisspreneur podcast. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. And I would like to start with the first question right away. You basically grew up in a Swiss-Mexican family in Mexico City before you then moved to Switzerland. And your parents were also entrepreneurs. They led a security firm for more than 25 years now. And I would like to know the differences that you have noticed between running a company in Switzerland and in Mexico City. Yeah, very good question. I mean, uh, there are big differences, I would say. Um, I think the biggest one has a lot to do with the environment uh, around building a company. I mean, in Mexico, it's not unusual to, to spend long amounts of time with bureaucratic processes, going to a governmental offices that will cost you half a day, a day fully. So I think from that perspective, the, the environment that we have here in terms of allowing you to focus only on building the business right. is spectacular and, and something that maybe it's hard to appreciate if you haven't seen kind of like the other side. I think so. And then yeah. from those bureaucratic processes, I think it also trickles down into many other areas of the business that make it yeah another type of challenge to build a business over there than what is here. I think here the, the focus on on building it without that many roadblocks is something that can be very helpful for, for building a business. Yeah, That sounds like a very good environment for startups, basically, right? Again, maybe it's just this uh, having seen how it can also be very different and, and a little bit more difficult. I completely appreciate and, and think it's just fantastic what we have here in Switzerland in terms of opportunities, talent, investors, potential customers that can uh, make things, yeah, at least the, the opportunities are there and it's up for the entrepreneurs to grab it and, and do something with it. 
Is there also something that we can learn from the Mexican environment or something that you or your parents see that Mexico does better than Switzerland in that term? Yes, I think there are, there are a few points there. Like in general, just the, how should I call it? Like resourcefulness. I think it's something that you have to learn and deal much better over there just because there aren't that many resources. So people learn to deal with whatever it is that they have and come around any sort of roadblocks that you have, right? So I think that pushing through and just making it happen no matter what, if, if, even if it looks impossible and not really like the way it could work out, I think that is something that, that is a very good uh, asset over there mm -hmm. that is also a byproduct of that very hard and difficult environment that people just learn to thrive even though there are very hard conditions against it, right? And so once many of those barriers are removed, I think here, there's a lot more friction, less friction to do certain things. And uh, yeah. This is very interesting because, you know, in, in Switzerland, most people still pursue the traditional corporate career uh, instead of starting a startup. Although we have, as you just described, a, a fantastic environment to actually do so. Mm -hmm. And that was also the first path that you pursued after university, right? You worked at Accenture to, as you, I think, said in an interview, save one year of living cost, basically. Yes, that, that was definitely one of the um, uh, of the goals. So coming out of uh, having studied at EBH first the undergrad and then the the doctoral part, it's not like I had huge amounts of saving. That was uh, so certainly one of the goals. The other one was also to get some exposure to how business are run and how business are done here. Mm -hmm. Something that after eight years or nine years I spent at ETH, I was a bit more of a, a nerdy side. So learning the whole business. Uh, uh, ways of doing things was also super helpful for me. So it was like a mini MBA, uh, lots of learning, lots of exposure, and it was a great way to, to learn that part as well. Mm -hmm. What are the specific learnings that you took away from that career path that you then could also apply to your, to your startup company? I would say so many. Um, it's starting with a very basic stuff that I just hadn't been exposed to that or having had to do that during my ETH studies from setting up meetings with executives, how to run a workshop with them, how to follow up after a meeting, uh, like all of that very basic groundwork that I guess maybe in high school it's a little bit more usual to work like that. So that, that was definitely one, one big learning. All the way to how consultants sort of work in terms of whatever problem you're thrown at, you're supposed to be the expert, maybe even if <laughs> you don't really have a big idea for that. So it's a, that mindset of, I can sort of learn anything in a short amount of time to a degree that I can say something or do something reasonable with it mm -hmm. um, based on a lot of what others have done and looking at how other colleagues of yours have solved similar problems for similar companies. Right. So I think that, that um, yeah, mindset of just getting into any sort of problem and coming up with a reasonable solution, analyzing in a systematic manner different alternatives, mm -hmm. uh, coming up with a good project plan, how to track it, how to communicate it, how to articulate it. I think there were a lot of uh, yeah, those learnings that, that I had all the way to how do you create a strategy for a company and how do you trickle it down into something operational, systems, processes, KPIs, and so on. So yeah, I think overall it was a, a huge learning opportunity for me, yeah. And as we said before, you also sort of took that job to also save some money, obviously. Yeah. 
would you recommend to take the step, not only because of the learnings, but also to sort of save for a certain safety net before actually starting your own company? Yes, I think it's certainly not a, a bad track. It depends a little bit on each individual's uh, economic situation or appetite, appetite to do it or how the venture is kind of like progressing or if you want to start something from zero from scratch and there are no resources, I think a certain, as you call it, safety net or, or runway that you give yourself is certainly beneficial and can be achieved uh, through that, right? Um, I don't think it's a must. I don't think one has to, to do it. Uh, there might be other ways to, to achieving the same in terms of having a certain runway or, or safety net for a given amount of time that gives you enough time to iterate and learn and, and come up with something that is repeatable and customers will end up paying for. And then was, was it always the plan to actually start your own company even before you started Accenture or when did that thought or that idea actually emerge? Yes, I think that, that was something that from quite early on, looking at my, my father and my, my mother, how they started the business and helping there. Uh, I, I was 11 years old and I was kind of like connecting their computers and helping them install Windows 3.1 and Word and, and creating the network for the two computers that we had. So kind of like that gave me a lot of exposure to that and, and familiarized to how it is to, to do that. And I think from that time on, Kind of like the founder's bug was already in there, quite, quite latent, I would say, for many years throughout my studies. And it was during the PhD time. Um, I remember, I think, even on the first day, I got an email from, I don't know if it was Venture Geek or something. Okay. And I asked my professor, hey, would it be possible to attend this type of course? And I never got an answer from him. So I thought, maybe okay. I don't Strange. raise it. <laughs> maybe I don't touch the topic too much. So yeah, three and a half years later, when I when I was about to finish, the mobile apps and the whole iPhone was actually kind of like ramping up and coming. And I was completely fascinated by all the different uh, opportunities that, that that opened and just kind of like felt that fire again to say, and let's now go and do something in that direction. Nice. And then you co-founded Spoka uh, with your co-founder, Flavio. Yeah. Can you tell us about the early days? How did that happen? What was your motivation to build this social network for students? Yes, sure. So it happened like that desire to, to go in that direction came out, uh, I would say 2009 or 10. And it wasn't until 2011, almost 12, that we really started working on that. So there was that, I would call it almost incubation period of, I would say at least a year, if not more like one and a half to two, where it was a group of friends and, and uh, I describe ourselves more like one to entrepreneurs. So we wanted to do something, but we weren't really doing something. So it was a lot of brainstorming and we had like this long Google Doc with many ideas and analysis and stuff, but nothing really happened. And that was kind of like the, the tipping point, the moment where we decided to do something. It probably wasn't the best idea and it wasn't even spoke of how it started. It was one idea before called BlickClick, like this anonymous flirting platform for students, which is this concept we had seen in the US, kind of like growing very fastly. And I said, why not do something like that for, uh, for Zurich? We come out of ETH, we know how hard it is to talk to girls. So sure. let's build something like that and I'm sure it will work. So basically out of your own need also to a certain yeah. degree. Exactly. So it was a combination of already wanting to do something and having gone through many different ideas and iterations and kind of like feeling antsy or uh, yeah, already with uh, wanting to do something, right? And acting on, on that urge to do something. And then you had this idea. How do you actually then 
move to realization of this idea and to put it into practice because that's a big step to take and also a huge effort, right? Yes, yes it was. So it really started in, on, we, we both still have our day job. So it was more of a after job type of activity or weekend activity. And it really started sitting together and saying, okay, we have to do something. What do we do? And how do we, and then we started going through the whole, well, how would we call it? And how should it look like? And given that Flavio was the only one who could actually do something program-wise, uh, he was the one who started coding. And then sort of naturally, I started taking the rest of the things that didn't have to do that, anything from kind of like marketing and how we call it and how we market it and how we bring people on board and uh, all of that fun stuff. So. It really was, a, I would say, a very slow sort of development at the beginning, but at the same, well, slow in the sense that more like lean, like not too much effort in it. But we were quite fast. I think within seven weeks, we had kind of like a first prototype that we were able to launch and start putting people nice. in it and so on. So I think but that's we, pretty fast for doing it part time, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. And I think the, the trick there is it unlocked just so much. I would say passion or uh, energy to want to do that, that it didn't matter to work kind of like the nine to five job, like eight hours a day, but then still have energy for another three to four hours after that. Right. Um, of course, that doesn't scale for a very long time, but for a very first uh, fast and furious start, it definitely helped us get off the ground. Absolutely. So then you built the first app or the first version, yeah. but you obviously also needed some users to actually make use of the application. How did you go about that? Yeah, we we can like roll up our sleeves and said we it's for students. We come from there. We were still very close to to ETH and to the University of Zurich. So we said let's do marketing on the campus. So we did a lot of guerrilla marketing. So we would even walk into the. Um, in, into these big rooms where we had our lectures and put post-its on the benches before students would come in. We would go to the cafeteria and put post-its on the, on the trays, um, do a lot of stuff that afterwards, of course, the university didn't quite like, but it helped us get that, that first batch of users into the, into the platform. Mm -hmm. And from that, then from that point, what happened afterwards? And then from there, um, so that, that was still kind of like this anonymous flirting platform. Uh, with that, we got maybe two, 300 users. We started seeing how they used the product. And it was fascinating to see that people were actually doing something with it. That was actually a very cool experience to, to see that happening. And the whole premise of the, the platform was about connecting people and making them find that misconnection that they maybe didn't want to talk to or or they were too shy to talk to her in the cafeteria so it was kind of like that missed uh, connection sport and what we learned was that we had so little people on the platform that virtually nobody would find that other person right so that was kind of like the the first uh, missed and what didn't work so we were there and said well how do we fix this? We either get more people on the platform or not. And at the same time, we observed that users started engaging with each other. And if a student would put, for example, um, and, and the very nice thing about it is that since it was anonymous, people would open up really deeply and say, oh my God, I have been in love with you for so many months and I would love to talk about it. And that, like really deep stuff. And other users would actually engage with that and give advice and start conversations and so on. So we thought, oh, that's actually also like a very nice dynamic. Why don't we focus on that one and create more of what you mentioned before, like this student community. And that's how Spokal emerged basically from saying, okay, let's focus only on that 
conversational aspect of bringing people together and connecting them around conversations uh, in certain locations. So that's why it was called Spokal from Speak and Local. And that was kind of like this next phase where we went from just a few hundred users to I think at the point we reached maybe some 15,000 users every month using the platform, spending a lot of time on there. On average, there must have been 30, 40 minutes on the platform. So we kind of like cracked that code of making a few tweaks, positioning it differently, and suddenly people really wanted to use it, right? So that was, I would say, the, the next big learning. Very nice. How did you go about these analytics and to actually really deeply understand how people are using the platform? Did you use any analytic tools or did you speak to the users or how did you go about that? Yeah, I would say, I mean, at that time, I think at the most, the the startup, lean startup book had come out. So there wasn't that much like this culture of doing things lean right. and failing fast and measuring everything. It was a little bit, but there, it was a lot of uh, us asking the questions of what are they actually doing? How do we understand what they're doing? And there were no beautiful like mix panel or any other type of tools that would just exactly. like show you everything <laughs> that is going on. So it was a lot of SQL queries that Flavio had to write to say, well, how, how does it look on monthly active users and weekly active users and daily active users? And how do we understand how much they're posting or commenting or liking or chatting? And we started asking those questions and building the tools for ourselves to understand what was going on. Nice. On top, of course, of going and talking to the users, right? Simply because we were so... Our very first office was next to the university, so we would literally walk uh, out and see our users, right? So, right. so that was also very helpful. Mm -hmm. You also started with a very small user group with students in Zurich, basically. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a good sort of market entry strategy to really start with a, with a small first user group, as Peter Thiel would also mm -hmm. sort of recommend it yeah. in his book Zero to One? Was that something that you did unconscious or was that more a given and in retrospect, is this something you would recommend to others to follow? Yes, I think we did it more unconsciously with, yeah, without really aiming for that, but it's definitely a, a good idea to... I mean, there are so many variables and so many things that can go wrong that actually having something super broad only makes it more difficult and complex, right? So. The, the more one can, I think, uh, reduce to the bare minimum or to a very small group, the easier it is to have those learning loops and iterate. Right. Mm -hmm. So definitely recommendable. And how do you then identify what you should actually iterate on? Because then you emerge to the, to the student network, mm -hmm. to the student social network. How do you decide about that this is the right path to go and not staying a flirting platform, for example? So at the beginning, for one or the other reason, we were very focused on, on kind of like the user and maybe reading too many blogs from Paul Graham saying, build something that people really want. So we were really focused on building something that people want. So it was a lot about the user and we were very focused on making that work. Once we sort of saw, ah, now, now that seems to be working, then the next question was like, how do we monetize this? And, and that came almost a little bit too late. That is definitely one of the learnings that okay. we should have actually started thinking about that much earlier, I would mm -hmm. say. But it must have come, I don't know, some six, eight months down the road where we had already burned some of the, the cash. So we would see basically our bank account going down month by month. Mm -hmm. And there was a point where you say, Ooh, it's soon going to be zero. So how do we make sure that we continue to, to be able to pay the bills, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So then it was more around, okay, how do we iterate around the business model? So it seems to be working. People seem to be engaging with it. There's a bit of a critical mass there. It's credible to go to many different companies and say, hey, we actually do have a community. There's a lot of eyeballs there and we can help you get in front of them, right? Sure. So uh, we talked a lot to HR departments, to people that wanted to do an employer branding or place products, everything like, for example, eat.ch, one of the first ones who started putting vouchers mm -hmm. and coupons on there um, and so on, right? So we started going more in that exploratory mode of seeing how can we make money, right? right, at the end. And how did that work? Because this is also a delicate topic, I can imagine, because people want to use the platform in order to interact with other people, but not to see the ads, right? Yes. Yes, that, that is very true. And I mean, we, we learned a lot about the online ads business. I think it's a, a very good one, as you can see from, from the big ones. But at the same time, yes, I mean, the, your users at the, are at the end your product and you're sort of selling them, right? We, we're coming out of this mentality of, yes, the experience for the user is the most important thing because we cannot force them to use anything. Thing, so it has to be always valuable for them. So that's why we're always trying to find ways to have some companies present there, but then at the same time have a value for the end user, right? So we would do a lot of, yeah, this type of activation campaigns where we gave away some, some uh, products or codes or discounts. I think, I don't know if it's in this room, but we have somewhere some flyers from the old days. We once gave even like a platinum card for somebody to go and eat sushi a whole semester for free. So we would do those cool. type of, of raffles that were also cool, and like a wow factor for students. Yeah. So always keeping your end user in mind to deliver value to them. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned your bank account. And yeah. if I remember correctly, you took fundraising uh, your first round pretty early with uh, friends, families and a business angel. Yeah. You raised about 50K. And in retrospect, you mentioned in an interview that this was a bit too early. Why did you come to that conclusion? Because we didn't have a business model. We didn't really have something solid that even I would have invested there, sort of. <laughs> but uh, so it was definitely too early. At the same time, there's always kind of like the struggle to, well, I'm running out of money, so we do need some sort of money. So that's how we ended up with a lot of time spent on that. I would have spent, I would say, maybe nine months, not full time, but kind of like doing, every, trying to do everything in parallel, kind of like doing something for the product, coming up with new ideas, understanding the users, but at the same time, making sure that there's somehow money in the bank. Um, so that was, yeah, just a lot of effort. And since, I mean, as it's very well known, nobody sort of tells you no directly. And at the beginning when you don't know and don't have an idea, it all sounds like, yes, it could be. I think this is a, very true for Switzerland because people don't like to be too negative and always try to be very polite. Yeah, and yeah. then instead of giving you honest feedback and saying, I would not buy it, they say, oh, it's a great idea. Exactly. Come back when you have something, then you keep working on it. Uh -huh. And then you realize, oh no, actually they, they don't pay for it, right? Exactly. Is that also what happened to a certain I mean, that, that happened mostly with investors. So with investors, it was like that. I think on the, on the other side, it was a little bit different just because we were trying to sell everything and anything and for whatever they would want to pay, we would take it and do it for them. So that was definitely a, a little bit different, but from the investment side, it was too early to, to go out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in retrospect, when would you say is a good time to actually raise your first round? Mm -hmm. What should have achievement or milestone should you have uh, achieved already? I mean, having something clear for which people will pay money and you know how to deliver it. So having a business model, I think that's the, 
the crucial thing, a little bit of a repeatable process where you say, yeah, I have a handful of customers, like those for first five to 10 customers where it all sort of falls within more or less the same pattern and so on. I think that's when it makes sense, right? At the same time, it doesn't have to be, right? Uh, bootstrapping is also a very fair way to do it. And we were, besides for that small round, basically bootstrap almost for the first three years. So that was basically once we saw how much of a pain it was to get something uh, into the bank from an investment point of view, we decided to not do that anymore and focus only on making money from revenues. Right. And that was kind of like the, the next best way to actually finance a lot of the learning and time that we were able to buy for ourselves from basically 2011 to 2013, roughly, mm -hmm. beginning of 14. So that was also a big learning and a, a great way to sort of sustain ourselves in a way that we were able to grow the team to almost 10 people. Nice. Um, and it wasn't only doing like spoke but we started also exploring other things. Right. We also took even some consulting gigs to be able to make and smith and pay for the rest of the, the salaries basically. So, yeah. And at a certain point, you also took a part-time job at Swisscom, right? Yes, Because correct. you saw, hey, uh, it's working, but it's also, we're also work, sort of running out of money. Yep. So you need to have an income somewhere else, right? That is correct. Yeah. How did you take that decision? Because I think this is very difficult for some because they are emotionally attached to their startup and their idea, obviously. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also sometimes smarter to stay, take a step back. And mm -hmm. as you did, maybe doing something in parallel. How did you yeah. go about that decision? Yeah, I mean, it was a decision that, that we took almost out of necessity because we were literally running out of cash. We knew there was no chance to go out and fundraise again with nothing new that we have had. Sure. So we knew it was either that or stop everything and then actually go look for a job, right? So we were still very much fully vested and convinced that we wanted to keep on pushing. But that was kind of like a way to just buy ourselves more time. Of course, that cuts into the mental bandwidth that you have to only focus on let's say one thing and, and building the business. Yeah. So there was a time where I was maybe doing three, four days for this IT project, helping them manage it based on what I had learned at, at, uh, at doing consulting. Mm -hmm. So that was very, very helpful skills to have actually. And then the other three or four days, I was actually doing the, the other part, right? So, and the rest of the team was sort of also working uh, on, on what was Spogel and Beekeeper at that time. So yeah, it definitely takes a, a cut in, in that ability to focus, but it gave us again that, I would say year, year and a half runway to actually uh, do a lot of the learning and ultimately arrive to the point uh, that led to the Beekeeper that we have today. And I would like to focus on that next. How do you actually then come up with Beekeeper? Because you had Spokal, the social network. How did you then come up and end up basically building Beekeeper afterwards? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, as I mentioned before, we were having conversations with this HR department. Mm -hmm. And we started hearing actually from our own customers like, wow, your platform looks actually so nicely designed. Young people seem to engage very much with it. Would it be actually possible to use such a community also for other purposes. Mm -hmm. And initially we were like, no, no, like we want to focus only on building our own community right. and uh, that's it. And also triggered by, well, we're running out of money. What can we do? Uh, one of the routes we explored besides getting like a consulting gig was um, to say, well, why don't we try to do a pilot where 
we basically copy paste what we have from Spoko, we remove all the users and we sell that as a technology to them, right? And it was kind of like our first, again, steps towards a, a, the SaaS solution and cloud and everything that, that now is so common, I would say. But turning like a one single community into a platform where we can have multiple tenants or multiple communities, that was kind of like the, the first step in that direction that allowed us to then start again, testing and learning a lot in that space. And there was also a lot of learning, I would say almost a year, year and a half, where we were, since we were coming out of this thought of communities, communities were kind of like very prevailing in our thinking and vocabulary and everything. So we started actually by selling communities. That was the first step towards Beekeeper. And we did a lot of that community work. At that time, we didn't even distinguish if it was like an internal community of employees or even an external community of customers. So we did, for example, for SBP, we explored the idea of doing a community for commuters, people that were commuting back and forth. We explored with UBS doing communities for investors, with uh, the postal, Swiss Postal Service for um, people that collect stamps. So th there was a lot of buzz around communities and as opposed to Facebook building, let's say your Facebook page where all the data belonged to Facebook and ultimately as it actually happened at that time, we were already saying, well, if they change anything, then you basically lose the reach to your community, right? Whereas if you have something on your own, you basically build your own and you build your own database, so to speak, you really own the relationship with the customer. So at that time, we were not quite clear if it was going to go more into the external communities. We were actually pushing much more there. So our bias, since it was a student community, open community, was yeah. much more to go there. And actually, we I remember one, one conversation I had with Flavio and he told me, look, uh, Yammer was just acquired like a few uh, months ago for 1.2 billion by Microsoft. So what are we exactly going to do with an internal social network or community? That doesn't make any sense. Like, why should we try it at all uh, go in that direction, right? And ultimately, we were also open to try that path. And that is basically what led us to have that Eureka moment with a hotel chain in Switzerland that wanted to try that out. So it was really an exploration. We did maybe 15 different projects and pilots, uh, some a little bit longer, some a little bit shorter, but allowed us to learn a lot of what worked and what didn't work, right? Of course, now looking backwards, it's very simple to say which one we would have, should have picked. But going forward there on the timeline, it, was, it wasn't that simple or that evident uh, at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine myself that this is a very difficult decision, especially as you just described one of the biggest uh, players in that area was just acquired by Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And then you think, okay, this is done and over. We cannot change anything in that space. Mm -hmm. What led you to the different conclusion that you can actually really do and add more value there uh, to clients? Yeah, a very, very good point. I mean, maybe to share with you a little bit the story of how that happened. Um, it was this uh, company called Swiss Hotel. So one of the brands that, you know, there's one in, in Erlikon, one in Basel, one in, in Geneva. At that time, they were being acquired by Fairmont Hotels out of Canada. So basically the, the VP of HR and the CEO were very keen on making sure that all their employees were actually well-informed and knew what was going on throughout the process because this type of mergers and acquisitions and so on typically unleash a lot of uncertainty uh, within the employees, right? And given that 
basically 80% of their employees were staff working in the hotel. So literally the cleaning lady in the hotel or the person in the kitchen or the concierge. They were just thinking, how do we reach them? How do we communicate what's going on? What's going to happen? What's, what's going to change? What's not going to change? What does right. it mean to them? And the way the hospitality industry worked at that time, and many of the hotels still do so, is by having announcements on the bulletin board, or you will tell that to the general manager of hotel, who will tell it to the shift manager, who will eventually, at the beginning of the shift, maybe mention it or not to the employees. So there are a lot of like broken lines of communication, as in many other industries where there are a lot of non-desk workers. And that was basically the point where we came more from the mentality of, yeah, let's build a community just because the community is cool and they need it. But ultimately, through that engagement, we learned that, um, I mean, we, we came in, we rolled it out, we started learning about, wow, they don't have an email address, so let's develop something quick in order to make them log in without an email address. We were very used to, from the university, be able to just go on campus, put flyers, explain people, bring, bring people on board. So those were very handy skills. Afterwards, when we went there, it became basically part of our DNA. We just rolled up our sleeves. We drove to the three hotels in one day and we onboarded everybody. So at the end of the day, when we came back and showed that to, to the project team, they were just fascinated by it. All right? They were like, oh my God, now I can literally write something here and everybody will read it, yes, and people would respond to it. And that was kind of like the breakthrough moment where we realized, wow, we're actually solving here a much bigger problem than what we thought initially, than, uh, yeah, than what we thought initially, right? So that was kind of like the moment where we realized, wow, in this, like the, the core problem we're solving is that they don't have a way of reaching their employees, right? And that was, yeah, five years ago. And then from there, we were, we completely fell in love with this, idea of companies that have a lot of difficult to reach employees, non-desk workers, and we started our whole journey to, to dive more and more deep into that direction, right? And, and funny enough, since we were able to sell it once to and have this uh, pilot customer, which fast forward, they're still a customer of ours. They rolled it out to 120 hotels and Beekeeper wow. became basically the transformational tool for the whole company. We were able to replicate that in other hotels. We also took a step back and said, well, there are so many other industries where this is, seems to be a problem. So every company we basically called, they all validated this problem. And that's how we started actually uh, coming to the point where there was a big pain that we were addressing and, uh, and, and had something for that, right? And then also the whole fundraising and so on kind of like took care of itself, so to speak, almost in the sense that it was much more a solid case, not a, like it wasn't like a super late stage company, but we had very good data points and proof points in terms of the the customers we were addressing, how we were selling to them, what we were selling to them, how we served them, how to get them on board, and so on. And then within just a few weeks, we were able to raise the first part of our seed round in in a much different fashion than than what we had before. So, yeah. I think that's a wonderful story and also a very strong case for investors after that, right? Yes, after that, I mean, it was, uh, I think from, from 20 people we contacted, 10 of them ended up investing. So it was like a, a very good hit rate, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, just made sense. And, and uh, people were very supportive. We got great business angels on board very early on. So that was a really, really cool. I think also a, a difficult topic to figure out for new products that you're releasing is the whole pricing aspect. Mm -hmm. 
how did you go about the pricing and how did you make sure that people or hotels in your case paid enough but also not too little yes i mean pricing is i would say a, a not like a final point where you have it done but it's something that it's continuously evolving i think the biggest transformational point that we got was the moment we said wouldn't it be beautiful to have a subscription business where people actually pay you a subscription for this so it was almost more by by design that we said okay we want to have something like that um, and in terms of how we chose exactly the the price we we started it was a little bit of a comparison with other tools what we had seen in the market and just because sort of the number sounded round, but we started with two francs or two dollars per user per month. That was kind of like just the one single price point we had. We honestly, I would say, didn't put that much research or time at that moment, but it was much more just making the step from having no sort of pricing because we had some that were paying for some hosting as a subscription, but it was like hosting, not really user-based. So I think that was the very first step in the right direction. And, and then afterwards, I mean, you probably also adapted the pricing, I can yeah. imagine. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, from there, we, we have been iterating on it quite, uh, quite regularly based on the learnings, based on how, uh, how our customers kind of like consume the product to map more of the journey that they have. Uh, so kind of like the next bigger step was when uh, our current chief strategy officer joined and said, hey, we cannot have like just one plan and one price point. Mm -hmm. and, so once, so let's differentiate and have kind of like a, the light version and the professional version and the enterprise version or three packages that people can choose from. And then from there, we started iterating on, on what exactly is within those packages, how do we structure them and so on. So yeah, it's kind of like a, a never ending topic, I would say. And there's always more data and more research and more understanding that we have in order to, to come up with, with those. And how did you go about communicating the value for the companies that actually bought your solution? Was there any return on investment calculation or was just the problem that you solved for them so big that they didn't even care too much you know, about the whole return on investment, but just so, hey, I need a solution and you're offering the right solution? Yes, it, especially at the beginning, it was much more like the second part that you described, right? And also as with this a curve of diffusion of technology into the market, they were all early adopters, the, the ones at the beginning. So they buy much more because they are the ones who want to look cool and have something amazing within their organization. They don't care if it's very scrappy and very buggy and so on. It just has to be new and shiny and innovative. And that's actually great, a great way to engage with them and learn a lot. And it's not, it wasn't until we started kind of like hitting that early majority or, or, or that part of the market that doesn't really only buy because of that, but they actually might want to see a business case. They might also want to see, yeah, this ROI or, or they need to articulate within their company what is actually the value there. So it wasn't until a little bit later that we had to start building up those type of uh, resources and, and ways of articulating value. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually hit product market fit, you were still a pretty small team and also much bootstrapped as you said before how do you then to decide hey now is the right time to scale and go big and i think now you employ more than 130 employees probably even more because you're growing very very fast yes. yeah. how do you take this decision hey now is the right time to actually scale up and then also execute on it um i mean there are two sides of of, of the story right i would say again the the very crude reality was 
this project with Swisscom was actually struggling and they were going to cancel it. So there was also some cash kind of like a reason to say, okay, now we need to look for another source if we don't have this. And it was the question of, should we go look for another project and keep on doing that? Or can like go to investors with a case and see if this is something that would fly, sure. right? So it kind of like the, the compelling moment to say, we need to do something about it was triggered by that other more external effect that, um, that, that, one, that is one side. And at the same time, again, now looking backwards, it's, it's a, it made sense at that point in time to go to the investors because we had a much more robust case in the sense that, yeah, there were data points, there were customers using it, there were customers paying for it. And we were kind of like in that mode of, uh, of really selling and starting to just require more resources to kind of like do that repeatedly and have a small team that only sells and one small team that is only helping the customers and one team that is only doing this instead of the founder sort of doing everything. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that was good, the good point to scale and scaling a company is really, really hard because I think it was uh, Ben Horowitz in, in his book uh, that he mentioned every triple time of your size, company size, basically all the systems and processes break down and scaling from 10 employees to 130 or even beyond that is a very, very tricky and hard thing to do. How did you successfully manage that? Yes, I mean, there are, as you correctly said, yeah, a few inflection points where things tend to, to break. I think one hard, difficult one was between 20 and 30. I think that was uh, a strong one. Then around the 60 to 80 was another one. And then I would say since then, we have him kind of like sailing nicely <laughs> into it. But um, how did we do it? I think it was just being conscious that we had to be constantly reinventing ourselves and and what yeah what used to work maybe a few months ago doesn't really work right now and we need to rethink it and redo it and always better and kind of like improving so it's kind of like that a uh, focus or urgency of always yeah improve and be able to to have kind of like that growth in in mind right and and thinking well what i'm doing right now will probably be done by three people or 10 people in a few months down the road. So what do I need to be doing now so that they can also do that, right? Um, right. Mm -hmm. And who were the, the most important key roles or key people that you hired afterwards to scale the company? So, I mean, at that time, and I mean, we didn't talk too much about it, but while Flavio and myself started kind of like the whole community part and so on, in the transition towards Beekeeper, there were two uh, other co-founders that joined a little bit later, Danny and Andrea. So it was kind of like the four of us that did a lot of that heavy lifting and, and carrying the, the company to that point. But some of the early hires that were uh, very transformational, I would say, and supported us was uh, Alberto Toledo, our current chief um, strategy officer. At that time, he was actually a very uh, experienced executive coming out of Citrix and like one of those guys that you wouldn't imagine working in a startup, but uh, he he had a great mentality, rolled up the sleeves, whatever was needed to make the business work. And he started helping us with generating some leads all the way into building up our operations team and then the finance team and then the HR team. And uh, doing a lot of that from 10 people almost to 100 people with him and a, a small team building the, the team. So that was definitely one of the the, the key hires. And then also on the product engineering side, customer success side, marketing side, like all our, our early uh, first couple of hires, like those between maybe employee five and 15, 
it's a, the, many of them are still with us nowadays and, and they've done a tremendous work in shaping the culture and helping up kind of like uh, scale many of the, the processes, keep kind of like the, yeah, the momentum going and the, the know-how transfer also going on. So, And growing a company also means you need to close additional revenue, you need to close additional sales. And you also decided to go international afterwards. And can you maybe walk us a bit through how you approach this and also how you actually get those sales? Because I think you have a strong sales team, but also strong self-onboarding where you clearly differentiate between who goes where, basically. Yes, I mean, I think the, the sales side, it's something that we started paying attention on to very, very early on and making sure that we built something that was a predictable and, and repeatable and that we could also communicate to investors in a, a way that would uh, instill trust and, and know, ah, okay, if these guys say they're going to get to this point, they actually do get there quite uh, with quite a high precision. So that is something that's, that's super difficult to actually also super deliver. Difficult. It's super <laughs> difficult. And at the same time, it's something that we dared to do. That was, uh, I would say, one of the, the wisdom that we were able to learn from, from Alberto. He had been VP of sales for a large team in Latin America and had done a streak of 12 different 12 quarters in a row where wow. he was kind of like hitting his, um, his numbers with a 5% precision. So he became kind of like a sensation within Citrix for exactly that predictability. So we were extremely... Uh, yeah, fortunate to win him on board and start learning a lot of those methodologies uh, quite early on and make it part of our, our DNA, which is something that we still keep up to today. And yeah, it, it's very hard, and uh, but at the same time, it's very important, especially for fundraise and so on, to be able to have this predictable machine in order to know where we're going to land at the end of a certain time period. Can you maybe also, because I think this is a very interesting topic, and yeah. I don't know, what you can share of that because sales is a, is super crucial and I also feel that many Swiss companies don't pay enough attention to it in the early days at least. Can you maybe also walk us a bit through how the sales actually work uh, at Beekeeper and what other people might be able to learn from it? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the most important things is just kind of like have people that are hungry to go for the hunt and bringing the money. So that is something that we learned very early on by just being forced to do it in order to survive by being bootstrapped. So we had to get that money in. And I think that that is one of the, the key elements. If I now look at all our, our sales team, the ones that are the most hungry ones are typically the ones that also perform the best. How and do you is, identify that in a person? Oh, it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult in, a, in an interview to kind of like see that because uh, as one of our very early advisors, Mark Stöckli, <laughs> used to say, if a salesperson is really bad at least they will be good in selling themselves so it's really <laughs> hard to distinguish that from a good salesperson in an interview and it really comes i mean depends also a little bit on the product on the market for us having a certain profile of people has worked really well not all of them and we have also screwed up many many hires and times and and having just simply kind of like not somebody that, that kind of like matches a little bit the, the culture, the value proposition of Beekeeper, the product and how we articulate it to the customer, right? So um, yeah, I think that, that hunger uh, 
from even the, the leadership and starting at the very top that you want to go for that. So Danny started building up the whole marketing, well, the whole sales team and customer success team very early on. His background is similar a little bit to me. He comes from Argentina, grew up also in an entrepreneurial family, having to actually sell. They have retail stores in Buenos Aires. So yeah, he, he knew what it meant to actually sell and get that money in. Um, Alberto himself, he's also Brazilian, so he has also kind of like that Latin grit and, <laughs> and wanting to do business. So I think, yeah, th there's something uh, to it that, uh, yeah, I would say we're not shy to ask for the money. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. I would also like to talk about the future. Um, there have already been some IPO rumors about the uh, beekeeper. What are your future plans? Do you plan to do an IPO or do you plan to get acquired or just build a profitable business and... Uh, have nice profits and pay dividends to your investors. Yeah, I would say what, what we ultimately want to do is impact the lives of many of those non-desk workers. I think it's fascinating to see how much we can transform the way a company works with Beekeeper, and that is absolutely fascinating. And we have a big goal of getting Beekeeper to 500 million people by 2030. So that is kind of like the, the bigger type of goal. And all the other ones, I mean, I think are more paths or routes or milestones on the way there. Um, let's say the, the IPO is not per se a final destination that we just want to arrive in order to be there, but one of the stepping stones in order to continue to go there, right? And there are different paths that can lead to that uh, big uh, goal that we have for ourselves and bringing Beekeeper to many people. And also partnering up with another bigger company that can bring it even faster to more people can make sense at some point in a, in a given time. But uh, also going back to the book that you mentioned before from, from Ben Horowitz, I think the market that we play in kind of like fulfills those two preconditions that he talks about. So there's not a clear winner for who is really taking the whole market of non-desk workers and not even the big ones and so on. So it's a huge opportunity and a great opportunity we have in front of us in order to, to grab if we manage to make that. And at the same time, there's no clear winner and it's a very big market. It's, it's a vast one. So it's not unthinkable that there will be a few giants playing in that space, like in Microsoft for non-desk workers and SAP for non-desk workers serving many different sides of what a non-desk worker needs in order to be productive and effective. So I think, um, yeah, that's where we want to go. And there are different routes there. So we're very curious to see where you end up. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and in order to wrap up this episode, I have two last questions for you uh, regarding additional resources or books that you can recommend. Are there any resources, books, podcasts or so whatsoever that you yourself consume on a regular basis that you can recommend? Yeah, sure. There are a few blogs that I followed that I have followed over the last years that have been actually really helpful to me. One of them is the one by Tom Tungus from Redpoint. That is very good really one. Good. Yes. That's a beautiful one. And the other one is by Seth Godin. I love those those small snippets of wisdom. I think they're they're great. And in terms of books my list got very big when I started thinking about <laughs> books I should recommend. But definitely uh, the one Principles by Ray Dalio. I think it's it's fascinating. There's another one called Flow that is really uh, inspiring. Why We Sleep, uh, Extreme Ownership. Those are some of the, the least, latest ones I have been reading. Yeah. Great recommendations. Yeah. And the last question, do you have any favorite tools or gadgets that you use yourself on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, a bit of a sports chunky, so I, lo I love doing sports and I have been very hooked up to the whole 
world of Garmin and how good of a job they do at uh, gathering data and presenting that in the in the mobile app and everything. So Garmin, the watches and the data is, is fascinating to me. And connecting that with Training Peaks, which is another sports app for planning training plans and so on. It's also a, a great one. And uh, for indoor cycling, I love Swift. I don't know if you know it. I haven't uh, heard about like that. A, like a way of using your own road bike to bike inside your house with one of these rolls that you can attach to it, but connect it to kind of like a virtual world where you can ride along other people. Cool. Makes it uh, much less boring than riding alone in your living room. <laughs> Sounds good. Chris, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you and I wish you lots of success for the future with Beekeeper. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed the content and if you did, we would be thrilled to receive your five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. Next week, we will already be back with a new episode with Chris, where we talk about fundraising for growth. He will provide you with a four-step fundraising process, how you can successfully raise funds for your company and for growing it to the next level. And of course, we also talk about all the stories that happen along the process. One, for example, that he will share is when you actually have to turn down a multi-million dollar investment from a prominent US venture capital firm, if they do not align with your company values and sort of negotiate or neglect your company culture. That and much more all packed into next week's episode. So I hope to see you again then for an all new episode of Swisspreneur.